Well, in uh, June of 1990, which for a handful of you was before you were born, uh, my wife Sean and I were celebrating our first anniversary, and we splurged, and for us it was a splurge to go to the movie theater to see a fantastic movie, The Hunt for Red October. How many of you have seen that now 33-year-old movie? Okay, all right, so just so you know, if you haven't, I recommend it. Uh, it was based on author Tom Clancy's first uh, Jack Ryan novel. I'm a Jack Ryan fan. Uh, the story is about this highly advanced stealth Russian submarine, the Red October. Sean Connery plays the captain uh, who has uh, decided to defect to the United States, and to do that with the collaboration of a small handful of others on the ship, he secretly hijacks this Russian nuclear submarine. He's got his whole crew, he takes him in international waters, and he creates this fake nuclear crisis on the sub to get all the men off the ship. So an American ship comes, he gets a secret message through that basically says, I'm defecting, and uh, here's the submarine, if you want it, you can have it. And so they get all the men who aren't on, in on the plan off of the sub, they get them on rafts to go to this American ship. Uh, they're confused and they're afraid, afraid, but again, this captain has created this fake emergency and he knows the Americans will get all these Russian sailors safely back to Russia. They put some American officers on, as well as CIA analyst Jack Ryan. On, he puts them on with this, uh, put, puts them on this sub with Sean Connery. Uh, they get back underwater. Everything is working as planned when out of nowhere, a torpedo is fired at the Red October. And we're going to get to the religious part in a second. Just, just hold on. Uh, well, they realize that what's happened is another Russian sub has followed them because leaders back in Russia have discovered the captain's plan to deflect and uh, so they've given orders to blow up the Red October and everyone in it so that the United States doesn't get their hands on this top secret Russian nuclear submarine. So they're trying to blow up the Red October, the captain, everyone on it. So now they're in this submarine battle. And towards the beginning of the battle, Sean Connery's character, this Russian captain, he orders the navigate, navigators to do something that makes no sense at all. In fact, it looks like it's an order that will result in the total annihilation of the sub and everyone on it. When the other Russian sub launches another torpedo, he orders them to turn the Red October directly into the oncoming torpedo that's been fired at them. And if you know what happens next, if you've seen the movie or you've read the book, and if you haven't, you're going to have to go home and watch the movie. Uh, but let me ask you this question. Have you ever felt that way about God? Have you ever had a time or a season in your life where you felt God was asking you to do something that made no sense? Every one of us at, at some point, if, if we're trying to engage God in our life, at every, every one of us at some point, we're going to be reading our Bible, or you're going to hear a sermon, or hear a podcast, you're going to hear someone's testimony, you're going to be reading a book, or an article, or you're going to hear something about going on in our community, or in our world. And you're going to just feel this gentle or maybe not so gentle prompting from God that you need to do something about what you just heard or something that you just read. And behind it will be this ask, just trust me, just obey me, trust me, obey me. This is what I'm calling you to do something or I'm calling you to change something, but it scares you to death. You're... You're afraid maybe of what you'll be sacrificing. Maybe you 
try to imagine or you think, well, this would just complicate my life or how complicated it would become or to do that. I, I have no idea how this could possibly work out. But here's something you need to hear. Because if you are somebody or if you're somebody who becomes serious about becoming a follower or a disciple of Jesus, you need to hear it. That's why we're going to talk about it for three weeks. Because this is so easy to miss. See, what we need to understand is God's ultimate agenda isn't your obedience and it's not your cooperation. God's ultimate agenda isn't, isn't like, oh, I finally got them in line. Who else do I need to work on? But we feel that way sometimes. It's like we tend to feel, okay, if I'm a Christian, then I need to do these 10 things, or I need to do these 614 things. No, God's ultimate agenda for getting you to obey him isn't simply your cooperation and your obedience. It's somehow you become like a trained dog, or you become like a robot. God's goal isn't just that we would act right. If God's goal was simply for us to act right, shock collars and lightning bolts would get that done, okay? Or by not having created us with free will. I mean, there's a lot of ways that God could be much more efficient if he wanted to get us to act or behave a certain way. But God is after something bigger and after something better. So if, if, if you have a Bible, you have a Bible app, you can follow along if you want to. If you don't, we, we'll have the, the on the screen. But I would recommend, like, if you don't have a Bible, there's what's called the YouVersion Bible app. It's free. It's excellent. Uh, and it, it's something that can help you if you've actually wanted to become like someone who, like, regularly reads your Bible. It comes with free reading plans and daily verses and all kinds of study tools. And today we're going to be looking at a book in the Old Testament, and we're going to look at a story that some of you have never heard. It's in 2 Kings chapter 5, and it's in this incredible story that God illustrates in an extraordinary way his ultimate agenda behind getting us to obey him, to do what he calls us to do. Now, I'm going to begin reading, and we'll sort of narrate our way through this fascinating story. The author tells us, now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master, and he was highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, uh, the nation of Aram was up basically up to the northeast, the far northeast of Israel. And this man, Naaman, was the second most powerful man in the whole country. He was highly respected. Uh, he had been a great general for his king, which, by the way, one of the things that should catch our attention, should fascinate us, because it's actually touched on later on in the New Testament, is this king, the king of Aram and this general, they were not God followers, like the God of Israel. They were actually pagan. And yet, the Lord had given victory to Aram. So that's a conversation for another day. But this man, Naaman, he, he's got leprosy. And uh, now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. And then one day she said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he could cure him of his leprosy. So the Arameans would regularly put together these raiding parties, usually it was an annual thing, and they would go in, they'd cross the border into Israel, they would rush in, they would steal gold and silver and clothing and crops and women and children, basically anything of value that they could take. Well, in one of these raiding parties, they had stolen a little girl, and we don't know how old she was, but she was apparently young enough that after a while, she began to consider her master Naaman and his wife uh, friends, maybe even paternal figures. 
However, she was old enough that she could remember something about her home and that there was something, she remembered that there was this very powerful man who lived in Israel, Samaria specifically, and she believed that her, her master Naaman could get to this guy, that this guy could actually cure him of his leprosy. So she goes to her mistress, kind of tugs on her skirts and says, hey, if, if there's a great man who could heal him of his leprosy. Well, this isn't a great plan. I, I mean, so we're going to go to our enemies and say, hey, could you do us a favor? Your, your number one enemy who organizes like these attacks and this resistance, like, could, could you heal him? And then we'll go back and we'll pick up right back where we left off. But it's leprosy. There's, there's no options. So Naaman went to his master, the king, and he told him what the girl of Israel had said. And the king replies, by all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I'm going to send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, which today would be about 4.6 worth of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. And they mentioned the clothing because back then, clothing isn't like it is now. It was extremely valuable back then. Everything was handmade. They didn't have fabric like we think of fabric. So clothing was hard to come by. It was extremely expensive. So they've got 10 sets of clothes with all this gold and all this silver. And then in verse 6, the letter that he took the king of, to the king of Israel read, with this letter, I'm sending you, I'm sending my servant Naaman so that you might cure him of leprosy. So imagine you're the king of Israel. It's like, uh, sire, um, there's somebody here to see you. Okay, who is it? Well, it's Naaman, like king, like, like the guy that runs all the army for your enemy. Uh, and he's here for a favor. It's like, seriously? Okay, so send them in. They read this letter. So, see, when the king of Aram heard that there was a powerful man in the nation of Israel, he's like, well, the most powerful man in my nation is me, so the most powerful man in the nation of Israel must be the king. So he sends all this gold and silver and Naaman with his leprosy to go see the king. Well, the king, he reads this letter. He's like, well, this isn't going to work. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes. And he said, am I God? Like, can I kill and bring back to life? Like, why, why does this fellow send, send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick, he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. The king of Israel thinking, is thinking this is a trick. Like, you know I can't heal him of his leprosy, and you're going to go back to your king and tell him the most powerful man in, of, in Israel wouldn't heal me, and then you're going to get all bowed up and mad, and you're going to try and raid us again. You're just trying to pick a fight. In verse 8, now, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent them a message. He should have sent robes, but he sent a message. Here's what he sent. Why have you torn your robes? And of course, tearing his robes, it was just a sign of anguish and grief and frustration. Have the man come to me. And now this is very important. Have the man come to me, and then he will know. In other words, when I'm finished with this guy, he's going to know something he didn't know before. This guy will know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots, and he stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Now, this tells us that he had a big entourage. He basically had his army with him. Now, I just want you to use your imagination with me because there's a lot left out here. But imagine, you know, the Jewish people, they're scattered all over Palestine. And Elisha, he's living in this little small town. And Imagine you're out there, you're sweeping your porch, you're doing some chores, and you pause, and you look up on the hill, and you kind of see some dust. And you think, oh, there are people coming. 
And, and then you keep watching, and then there's more dust. And then suddenly you realize it's horses and it's chariots. What do you think? You panic. You panic. It's like you, you panic. It's like, hide your kids, hide your wife. The Arameans are coming. Run and tell that. It's a raid. Some of you got that. Uh, everybody's you know, running around. They're panic and they're grabbing up everything they can because they need to, to flee because there's this huge military entourage headed towards our town. Well, it finally arrives. And honestly, I imagine the streets were deserted by that point. And Naaman, he, he's an important man. And he's used to being treated with respect and fanfare. But he pulls up right up to the door of Elisha's house, and nobody's around. And the next thing that happened had to have been an insult to him. So Naaman went out, went with his horses and chariots. He stopped at the door of Elisha's house, and Elisha just sends out a messenger. He sends a messenger out to say to him, before the conversation begins, um, Go. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. And then he goes back in the hut and shuts the door. That's it. It's like, what? Like, that's it? Are you serious? I've come all this way for this? And Naaman, he's just stupefied. He's like, I'm, I'm an important man. I'm a powerful man. We could just crush this town. In fact, I think we've crushed this town before. We could do it again. And some servant guy comes out of this hut. And like, again, don't think house like we think house. It was, it was a small hut of sorts, maybe made of mud bricks. We don't know. But this servant comes out before the conversation begins. Here's what you need to do. And it just goes back in, and Naaman immediately thinks what we would think in this situation. In fact, don't miss this. This is what we often think when we sense that God is trying to prompt us or lead us to do something asking us to do something. We think that doesn't make any sense. For, for Naaman, it's like, I, I mean, I, I have leprosy. I don't need a bath. I need to be healed. This doesn't, I don't see any connection between my desire and my need and what God is asking me to do. I think you're making fun of me. I think you're mocking me in front of my men. You've told me to do this silly, ludicrous thing. So Naaman went away angry and said, I thought surely he would come out to me and that he would stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I have washed in them and be cleansed? So he turned off and he went off in a rage. He had an expectation. See, this is what we do. He had an expectation of how God would behave. He had an expectation of how Elisha's supposed God would behave and how this would play out. Like, I'm going to just go show up, and this guy, whoever he is, he's going to come out. He's going to go, Naaman, oh, we are so honored to have you in our town. And he's going to go in. He'll bring out some black cauldron and throw in some, like, blood and pig's feet. I don't know. Make some sort of potion. He's going to call on the name of the Lord his God, and then smoke's going to billow. He's going to wave his hands, and there would be some big, big dramatic show, and then I'm going to be healed of my leprosy. But instead, Elisha doesn't even have the courtesy to come out and talk to him. He just sends out a servant to basically say, you need to turn your horse around and leave. Just make sure you stop at the Jordan River. And we don't know, it might have been hours, it may, may have been miles or days, we don't know. But go down to the Jordan River on your way home, dip seven times, you'll be cured of your leprosy. And so, of course, Naaman's furious because this doesn't make any sense. 
I don't see any connection between my problem, what God is telling me to do. And again, that's us. God, I'm already stressed about having enough money for me and mine. In fact, I have prayed, God, to financially that you would help me. And now you tell me to give, to be generous. You want me to give away more? That doesn't make any sense. Or God, I was lonely and I finally got this guy, I finally got this gal, but you want me to risk the relationship by saying no to sexual intimacy until we're married? Or you want me to ask them to move out? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, God, you're smart. You don't buy a pair of shoes until you try them on first, right? Or God, you want me to break up with them? Like God, like I was single or I'm single again. I mean, my clock is ticking. They're the best I'm ever going to get. You want me to break up with them? Do you not see my dilemma? If I break up with them, I'll be alone. I don't see the connection. Or God, it's, it's 0% interest for a year. And you want me to say no? I mean, God, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, I can't even keep up with everything else going on in my life. And God, you want me to, to serve? Like, not just on Sunday, but in, during the week? Like, that. Or maybe you've had all of these justifications and rationales to keep God, and especially Jesus, at an arm's distance, but you sense that God is calling you to actually and fully surrender your life and your eternity and your hope to Jesus. But I still have all these unanswered questions, and what about, and what about, and it doesn't make any sense, so we do what Naaman does. We may not say it so directly, but it's forget it. This is not what I expected. This is not what I have prayed for. This, this doesn't make any sense. I can't make any sense of what God is calling me to do or give, but fortunately, Naaman had someone in his life, someone close to him, that I hope that every single one of us has in our own life. He had someone around him who had the courage to speak truth into his anger and doubt, to bring into his unreasonableness a sense of reason. The people in his situation happened to be his servants. So Naaman's servants went to him and he said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? Like how much more then when he tells you wash and be clean? Like if this guy had said, to, in order to be healed of leprosy, you must slay the seven-headed dragon of Endor, would you have done that? Oh yeah, I would have done that. I mean, it was something to prove my courage and my valor and my strength. Like, I would have done that. Or if he said, in order to be healed, you must collect the thumbs of 300 of your enemies. Oh, yeah, I would have done that. You know, something great to prove myself. But washing the river, what does that have to do with anything? I see no relationship between I want what I want and what this God is telling me to do. So they look at him and they just say, if you'd been willing to do this great thing, why not try to do this little thing? Like, what, why not just try? What do you really have to lose. I just need to pause to say that for some of you, for some of you in the past weeks or months, maybe even longer, God's just trying, he's been trying to get your attention, either through sermons or messages or a podcast, something you've been reading, or through friends, through a family member, or just deep down in your heart, you know God has asked some of you to do a simple thing. And you really don't have much to lose by trying it. But you need to. But you're not sure how it's going to work out, or you've told yourself it just seems like such a waste of time, or 
But the truth is, as we're going to see with Naaman, you have no idea what's at stake for you to choose to stop making excuses and to simply do that simple thing. You see, you and I live with the myth of control. I'm in control. You're not in control. You and I are just one doctor's call away from everything spinning out of control. And we live with this illusion. And so we have nothing to lose. And the truth is we have far less to lose and far more to gain than we think. And that was Naaman's situation. He decides to do this crazy idea. Verse 14, so he went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan River seven times as the man of God had told him. And as he came up from his seventh dip or immediately after, his flesh was restored and he became clean like that young boy. Let me ask a question. If you had cancer, and somebody said, you go down to the Arkansas or Arkansas River, whichever you prefer, and you dip seven times, and you'll be healed, and you come up out of the river, you're healed, and your skin would be like that. I mean, ladies, do we want to know how much money some of you spend on products to maintain or regain that youthful skin? Okay. And your oncologist, you go to see them, and they say, I, I can't explain it but your cancer's gone. There's zero trace. In fact, you're not only completely cancer-free, but like your health level inside and outside is like that of a healthy 12-year-old. How would you respond? Or you're a young couple, desperately trying for a child. You've seen doctors and specialists spent thousands of dollars to no avail, and somebody says, if you'll go down the Arkansas River, and dip seven times, you'll get pregnant, you're like, whatever. But you go down there at night when nobody's looking, and you dip seven times, and the next month you pee on that stick and there's two lines. How would you respond? Don't miss this. This is the point. This is where God wants to bring you and bring me over and over again in our life because God is not simply interested in controlling our behavior. That would be simple. But God's primary, and God's primary agenda isn't wanting something from us. It's wanting something for us. He sent Jesus to die for your sins, not so that he could get control of you. He wanted something for you, something far more significant. And so oftentimes, asking us to do the unusual things that don't really seem to connect, that don't really seem to connect with our issues or our needs, our desires or our fears, is the very thing God uses to accomplish his hidden agenda, which is not that hidden. Look what happens in verse 15. Then Naaman, after he's healed, not surprisingly, he and all of his attendants, they go back to the man of God. And apparently he comes out this time. And he stood before him and he said, I, I am healed of my leprosy. Let's bottle this stuff and sell it. We're going to make a fortune. That's not what he said. The Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God and he stood before him and he said, now I know something that I didn't know before. I had heard about it, but I did not know. But now I know that there is no God in all the, not land, not nation, not even my nation. There is no God in all the world except in Israel. I didn't even come here for this. I did not show up on your doorstep to somehow meet God. 
I showed up to be healed and cleaned of leprosy, but now I can't believe it. Now I know. I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Do you know what God's hidden agenda is for our obedience? It's not to control your behavior. It's to get your faith to intersect with his faithfulness because in that moment, you will experience God. God's ultimate agenda is for you to know him and for you to know that he knows you by name and that you matter to him. Something happens in you that will overshadow what's happened to you or around you, and you won't go home over the fact that your leprosy or whatever issue you were dealing with is gone. You'll go home rejoicing over the fact that the God of the universe knows me, that the God of the universe has touched down in my life. I decided to trust him to do as he asked, even though it made no sense to me, and you won't believe what happened You won't believe what happened in that relationship or with my my health. You won't believe what happened in my finances or what happened in my marriage. You won't believe what happened with my education or my work path. But I'm telling you, I experienced God, and that is God's agenda for you and for me. It's not to control and conform your behavior. Again, lightning bolts and shock collars would do that. He could just take away our free will, and boom, boom. I'm conformed. You're conformed. But instead, instead he sent his son to die to have a relationship with you and with me. And he's called us to follow him. But a good relationship, and we all know this, a good relationship is predicated and based on trust. No trust, no relationship. Trust is the currency of any relationship. So, so obviously then it makes sense that God would oftentimes call us to do unusual things force us beyond our comfort zone in order to teach us that he can be trusted at all times in all things. He knows that in the moment when I finally say, I'm going to trust you, and we do what he's asked us to do, and then he comes through for me in that moment when he comes through for me in that special moment, it develops a relationship, and that's what God is after. Naaman didn't show up with a spiritual problem. He showed up with a circumstantial problem, but he was willing to do the unusual thing that God had asked him to do. And Naaman was simply hoping to go home saying, I, I got rid of my leprosy. He, he never imagined that he would go home and say, and I found God. See, he didn't know what hung in the balance of his decision, and you don't know what hangs in the balance of your decision, whether or not to trust and obey God in whatever area it is that he's trying to nudge you to move you to do something, to move you to action. You think you know what hangs in the balance, but you don't. You think you know. Like, like if I do what God's calling me to do, I will be lonely. I'll be alone. I won't have enough. I'll lose my reputation. You don't know what hangs in the balance because you don't know ultimately what God wants to do in and through you. You just don't know. Well, this is what happens in the end for Naaman. He says, please accept a gift from your servant. He's trying to give the guy millions of dollars. The prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. Well, if you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth or give a dirt as a pair of mules can carry for your servant. 
will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. Now, why does he want dirt? Well, here was their way of thinking in that particular culture. God people, God king, people dirt. (laughs) It was kind of the order of things. God kind of hovers over your dirt. So if I can take some of your dirt back with me, God will kind of hover over my dirt, and then hopefully I will gain favor, you know, continued favor with with the king and with people and all this. Uh, Well, that's just how they thought. He had become a God worshiper. He had been healed. And he's second in command of this powerful nation, but he had now abandoned his false gods and his false idols. Why? Because his little bitty act of obedience and faith intersected with the faithfulness from God, and he was a changed man forever. And that's why we're talking about this, because that, if you choose to engage it, this is the Christian life, where the life of a disciple, the life of a follower of Jesus, over and over and over again. And here's something so important you need to hear, because best, especially because of how some of us were raised, or the spiritual tradition we were raised in, this is not a one-time thing. This isn't, well, you know, when I was a kid, when I was 14 or 25 or 41, whatever, I prayed the prayer and I checked that box. Or it's not when I was a kid or when I was in my 30s, I got baptized and I checked that box and I got on with my life. No. It's a lifetime. It's a lifetime of experiencing these promptings and these callings, a lifetime series of invitations. Obey me. Trust me. Obey me. Trust me, so that you can know me, so that you can know more of my love. And it's agonizing every single time, which at some point, it just doesn't make sense. Like, why do we get to a point like I, somehow we can't trust him? We agonize, we're afraid, what's going to happen? But then down the road, what so many of us have experienced, like, oh my gosh, what if I had said no? What if I had rebelled against what I felt God was calling me to do? Because you don't know what hangs in the balance of your decision, especially when you're in middle school, high school, especially college, like your little world, everything revolves around three or four different things. And you can think, you know what, like if I'll be left out, if I do think God's, things God's way, I'm going to be left out. Or what are people going to say? Or I'll never experience the kind of spring break that honestly I kind of want to experience. Or my chance will come and go if I choose to do what God is asking me to do. Listen, you don't know what hangs in the balance of your decision to remain faithful to God. You just don't. You think you do, but you don't. And you'll never know until you come to a place where you say, God, I trust you. And now I'm going to watch and wait and see what you do. One of my most significant encounters uh, was when I was 18. And at that point, I was wrestling. That's 18-year-old Chad. Styling. (laughs) Love that white tux. At 18, I was, uh, I was wrestling with what it looked like to be a Christian. And I believed a lot of the right stuff, for the most part, about God, about Jesus. Uh, but God, I kept in a box. And I just pulled him out whenever I needed him. Like in this case, I needed a date. And I'd just pull him out. And see, I would kind of go through these spurts where I was serious about God and then spurts where I wasn't. Kind of like some of you have had spurts where you got serious about diet and exercise. Um, but after about two weeks of that nonsense, like you kind of moved on until the next year, right? But this was during one of those spurts. I had quit my job. I'd sold my car. Uh, all my belongings were packed into boxes because the day had come for me to process into the Navy 
and head to boot camp. But during the final intake process, they had a bunch of us in the room with a guy in uniform, and he happened to ask, have any of you had any type of surgery since your initial medical exam some months earlier? Well, I had been in a bad wipeout water skiing that summer, and I'd had an orthoscopic procedure done on my knee, but I definitely didn't want to say anything about that because all I desperately wanted to do in that moment was to get on a plane that morning and get on the boot camp and get on with my independent adult life. And raising my hand was going to put everything I wanted and hoped for at risk. I had no idea what the outcome would be if I raised my hand, but I was convinced that it would not be good. Uh, They might reject me altogether. Uh, All I knew was I was definitely not college material at that point. That wasn't going to be good. Uh, But the problem was I was in this season where I was trying to do things, things God's way, and I felt in my gut, even though the chances of them finding out about this procedure was near zero, I felt in my gut I needed to raise my hand, even though it made no sense. So I did. And leaving out tons of details, the end result was all of my worst fears. They sent me home where I no longer had a job or a car and all my belongings were in boxes. And I was told I could re-enlist again if I wanted to in a few months, but for now I had to wait. I was devastated. I was shocked. I was angry. I was sad. And in that moment I felt, see, This is what you get when you do things God's way. Thanks a lot, God. But what I didn't fully comprehend was how that small decision would completely alter the course of my life. Because in the months months that followed, I actually ended up getting a much superior Navy contract, which doubled my GI Bill for college, which down the road allowed me to graduate completely debt-free. But here's the biggest thing of all that I could have never predicted. Because of that one decision, rather than being stationed on the East Coast where I was originally supposed to be stationed, I was stationed in San Diego. And as a result, I was perfectly positioned for March 20th, 1988, to have a life-altering, defining moment with God, and a few hours later to meet the green-eyed blonde who 15 months later would become my wife and the mother of my four sons. It was the greatest day of my life. That same week, it became clear that God was calling me to abandon my previous life plan and enter full-time ministry, which I still question. But because of the contract I got, I was able to marry and start in the seminary four years earlier than I, with my original, that I would have had. Because I raised my hand. So this little tiny act of obedience, 17 months earlier, intersected with God's faithfulness, and I experienced God in a completely life-altering way, and I had no idea what hung in the balance. What if I had said no to God? This is where we all get hung up, because we want to know, and I get it. Okay, God, if I, if I say yes to you, what's in it for me, Right? Like, what's on the other side of this? But I believe part of the reason that God rarely shows us that is because then our focus would shift from what God is calling us to do to what what we're going to get. Because God says it's not about what you're going to get. It's going to be better than that. 
I want you to know me. I want you to experience me. I want you to build trust. I want you to look back and say that was a God thing. See, if God said, look, if you'll give and be generous behind door number two, I've got this new house or this new car, like, boom, here you go. Or like God's been calling you to like, you need to, you need to break up. If you'll break up with him, you see that guy right over there? He's what I got. I'm, where'd she go? She's already over there. See, I mean, think about it. Isn't this true for all of us? Think about for so many of us, we've had a situation or a time where we have prayed and prayed and prayed for something, and then God showed up. And then a few months down the road, you can't remember when the last time you prayed was. Well, why is that? Because you got what you wanted, and you just don't feel the need for God so much in your life. See, God isn't trying to control our behavior. He he wants a relationship with us. He wants us to learn to trust him. I mean, think of the heroes of the faith. I mean, Abraham, Abraham, go. Where? Just go. I'll show you. But why? I'll explain later. Just go. Moses, go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh, God, you want me to what? Yes, I want you to go. Just seriously, just trust me. They will make movies about you later, okay? He didn't know any of that. We're like, Noah, you, you, you want me to build what on dry land? Yeah, just, just build it. Just trust me. So here's my question for you. What is it that God, what is it that God in the last week, month, maybe a couple of years, what is it that God has been pressing you about? Where is he calling you to seemingly turn into that oncoming torpedo? To just do it, but you get a little anxious. If you think about it too long, like, like, I don't know how it's going to turn out. I don't know what the end result will be. I don't see how it connects with anything in my life that I'm most concerned about. But let me tell you what will happen. If you will take that courageous step that you know in your gut God is calling you to take, it doesn't matter how small your faith feels in that moment. If you take that step, when God's faithfulness arrives, you will see it clearly. You will feel it. You will experience a glimpse of God like you never have before. And you'll know him more. You'll trust him more. Let me ask you this. How smart is your God? How wise is your God? How well does he know you? I mean, can he be trusted? I mean, how big is he the God that created the universe? Here's the only way to find out how trustworthy God is. Here's a phrase that might help you remember. To understand why, submit and apply. It seems so simple. Do you understand, want to understand why God is calling you to do what he's calling you to do? Why he's prompting you? Why he's nudging you, calling you to take action in some way? If you want to know, you've got to turn into the torpedo. Submit and apply. Obey him. And at the end of the day, you'll know him. You will have experienced him. You have learned to trust him. And you, you'll share what he desires most from you. You'll share love and affection, a love and affection that he already deeply has for you, the relationship that he so dearly paid for to provide because he loves us and he wants to offer us a hope in the future. Let me pray for us. Father, you are so good, and I'm so grateful to you that we have the text that we have, that we have the stories that we have 
that have passed down through history for us so that we might know, so we might have these examples of ways that you've shown up in the past to encourage us to have the courage to, in a sense, put your, tr- your trustworthiness to the test. Father, I pray for everyone that's in this room, those who are listening to us online, for wherever it is, Father, that you would just amp up the volume a little bit for where it is that you're calling them to take that step of trust with you. I pray, Father, that you use other voices or other means to, again, just amp up that volume and that you'll give them the courage to take that step. And then, Father, I just pray in the name of your Son that you will show up in an unmistakable way as quickly as possible to begin to rapidly develop and build that relationship and that trust and that they would experience that joy and that, Father, that they would experience so much more than they could ask for or imagine, which is something the Apostle Paul later on promises that you offer. So I pray for all of us, Father, in the name of Jesus, that you would give us that ability, that courage, and we look forward to all that you will do. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.